we're worried about losses, not necessarily gains. The gains will take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, we're trying to prepare, not predict. Welcome to Mastering Your Exit Strategy. I'm your host, Christine Trumbull, a certified exit planning advisor, CPA, and certified tax strategist. I've spent the last 30 years working with owners to grow and scale their businesses, and then went on to help my own husband grow his. After his passing, I moved to the next chapter, ensuring seamless transitions for family-owned and closely held businesses. Each week, we are talking to experts about growth and transition, so you can not only simplify exiting your business, but also get as much wealth out of your business as possible. Thanks for joining me, and let's get started. Thank you for joining me again. This is Christine Trumbull with Mastering Your Exit Strategy. And today joining me is Jason Buck. So Jason is an entrepreneur and trading special and trader specializing in volatility, options, hedging, and portfolio construction. Don't worry, we're not going to get that technical. <laughs> we're going to be informative. But after living through 2008 as a commercial real estate developer, Jason became focused on how investors could better manage their risk. He spent the following decade consulting on portfolio construction and building bespoke long volatility strategies for family offices and high net worth individuals. This experience in cross asset class trading spotlighted the need to create a diversified long volatility and tail risk fund designed to hedge the risks associated with economic downturns. In addition to his role as the CIO of Mutiny Fund, Jason is regularly sought after and recognized for his work as a public speaker and media personality in the finance space. He's a frequent contributor to several outlets, including Real Vision, Top Traders Unplugged, and Blockworks, where viewers tune in weekly for his popular live YouTube show, Pirates of Finance. Jason has been featured in Business Insider and ETF Trends, as well as several podcasts, including Resolve Riffs, The Business Brew, Dr. Dark After Dark, The Derivative, and others, and is the co-host of the Mutiny Investing Podcast. A former D1 soccer player and IMG Academy graduate, Jason, Jason currently resides in Napa Valley, California. Welcome, Jason. Thank you for having me on, Christine. It's an honor, and I uh, really enjoyed listening to your podcast, so it's great to actually be a guest. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoy it, and I love the, you know, for those of you who are tuning in on YouTube, the the background is is all about wine, <laughs> hence the Napa Valley concept. Um, I'm going to ask you a question um, off uh, what I'd already planned. I was getting ready to ask before we turned hit record. Uh, I found it interesting that part of your bio was that you lived through the 2008, oh, I've got bells and buzzers going. Sorry about that. Uh, that you lived through the 2008 time period <laughs> <laughs> as a commercial real estate developer. So are you still in real estate? Um, no, not technically anymore. Um, but what's interesting, like you said, 2008, what's interesting to me is uh, financial markets, people will say 2008 and real estate people will say 2007. Yeah. It kind of shows that like we saw the kind of the collapse in real estate in 07. And then we saw the collapse of like Lehman in the stock market in 08. Right. Um, so it's always been interesting to me, the timing of that, because, you know, I started maybe seeing 
you know, a little bit of the fractures in, in late 06, early 07. Um, but no, the experience of, of 2007, 2008 left such an indelible impression on me that I had to figure out how to, um, you know, create some sort of portfolios or, or hedges to hedge entrepreneurial risk. So mm-hmm. that's why I've spent the better part of the last decade working on. Um, so it's taken the, of the focus away, away from commercial real estate. But um, I'm, I'm a bit of a weirdo. So on my weekends, I relax by looking at residential real estate on Zillow and commercial real estate on LoopNet. And I stay in contact with a lot of my commercial real estate friends and I'm always like pinging ideas off of them. So there, there's a possibility always that I could get back into that space. But the way I always say is like, I, I'm a... Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I desire to be an artist and I, and I can't paint, I can't draw, I can't do any of those things. So it was great being a commercial real estate developer because you're basically, you know, using sculptural skills to, mm-hmm. to create environments for people to move through. So you're okay. basically creating art at the human scale. And I really, really enjoyed doing that. That's fantastic. I like the, I, I, I like the way you, you created that, that, that vision that, that, just made it. I like that. That's, that's very cool. Never looked at commercial real estate that way. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I, I might be uh, too romantic about it, but yeah, that's, that's the way I look at it, especially when I was developing projects around that King street corridor in Charleston, South Carolina, and anyway, mm-hmm. the center in there, it's one of the great main streets of America. Yeah. But not only that you have over 800 antebellum homes on that, on the Charleston peninsula. So you have this very historical representation, which, you know, creates a lot of constrictions about what you can do. But what was interesting is I knew developing those properties is not only that, that sculptural character of people who get to live and work and, and engage with the environment that you create, but knowing that environment is going to be there long after I'm dead. So right. that was the other thing is like That's... thinking about like in that form, it's like if these buildings have been around for two to 300 years, they're likely to be around for another two to 300. So it gave you an interesting perspective on, on creating those art projects. That's fantastic. I like that. That's very, very legacy thoughtful. That's very cool. Yeah. So well, let's let's get into talking about. Um, uh, y- you're very much about protecting entrepreneurial risk and working in that realm. But let's let's talk about the cockroach portfolio. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I, I don't know if too many people have ever heard of anything even remotely similar to something called a cockroach portfolio. So what is that? What is it for? And when is it appropriate? Perfect. So let me start. Actually, let me ask for your feedback. What do you think of the name cockroach? Do you hate it? I could just tell by your face, like it was just making you laugh at least. <laughs> well, I've never, you know, I mean, quite frankly, you don't, you don't go into anything finance or, you know, I'm not calling up my, my, you know, Edward Jones guy saying, not that I have an Edward Jones guy, but I'm not calling right. him up going, Hey, can we invest in something called the cockroach portfolio? <laughs> right. Um, you know, it, 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 but, and it probably elicits the thought that you're potentially looking for in that no matter how bad it gets, um, you know, the cockroach is always going to be around and they're going to be the last man standing. Um, so if that's the same, if you're applying that concept to my portfolio and that no matter how bad it get, no matter how bad it, bad it gets, I'm my, me and my portfolio are going to be the last one standing. I'm okay with the name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's the whole point, right? It's very evocative and visceral, but mm-hmm. then hopefully it it means exactly what we wanted to, that we're we're trying to manage multi-generational wealth. We're trying to, you know, have you stay wealthy. And so that's the whole point is, is we know cockroach can survive anything goes the the old trope. And what I also got tired of is that in our space and in, in hedge fund world, 
you know, a lot of people have three letter acronyms or all these Greek mythologies and nobody can ever remember the names. And so when people either love or hate the name, I'm like, but are you going to remember it? And that's all I'm trying to be is like, get that, get that seed in your brain. So you at least remember the name of what we do. Mm -hmm. But the idea, yeah, it's to survive anything. So, you know, going into, you know, I've been a, an entrepreneur, real estate developer, but also a trader of like volatility and options for going on decades and coming out of that great financial crisis of 2007, 2008, like I was saying, I was like, how do I, you know, figure out how to hedge risks or make sure, you know, a portfolio isn't just long liquidity or long, uh, long GDP. You know, when, when liquidity is awash and, and, and the good times are rolling, everybody's excited and everything's going up together. Rising tide lifts all boats. What happens when we have these, uh, you know, liquidity cascades or, you know, the market kind of dries up on that liquidity or your ability to get credit, like we saw in 2008, and we started to see in March of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so what we think about is most of the portfolios that any financial advisor are going to show you are all offensive assets. They try to show you this pie chart of diversification. And throughout that pie chart, you're going to have real estate, uh, private equity, venture capital, um, stocks, bonds, but all of those things are actually offensive assets. So even though they're showing you this pie chart of diversification, they're all really one thing when a, when a liquidity crisis happens, as we saw in March 2020 or what we saw in 2007, 2008. And so what people aren't talking about is the defensive assets. So this is what we try to do is we use an ensemble of offensive assets, but we pair them with defensive assets. Okay. And the idea is, you know, offense wins games, but defense wins championships. So what we're trying to do is have a lot of these offensive assets that everybody else has, but then we have these defensive assets that help hedge your risk, you know, during those times of of like liquidity crisis or recession. So we pair a lot of those offensive assets that I listed, we pair those with our our long volatility and tail risk ensemble. And then we also uh, pair it with a commodity trend ensemble. And the idea is, you know, a long volatility or terror risk ensemble is negatively correlated to the S&P or equity markets. So when they sell off, this provides a nice convex ballast to your portfolio. And then the idea around uh, commodity trend advisors, they're trading, you know, 80 of the most liquid commodity markets around the world. And during times of um, deflation or disinflation, where those bonds and other offensive assets aren't going to do well, hopefully in that inflationary environment, you get the highest beta you can do inflation from the commodity trend advisors. But the entire concept of combining offensive and defensive is you're reducing that what we call the volatility tax or the risk of drawdown. So a lot of people will look at stock charts and look at it for the last 100 years and go, wow, that chart's up and to the right. All I have to do is buy the S&P 500 index and hold. But <laughs> that ensemble average is not actually your average of your lifetime. So right. it's your actual sequencing risk versus the overall everybody in the world sequencing risk over 100 years. Those two don't equal each other. And so you can go through these long periods of a, a decade or two when the stock market's under the water. Underwater, mm-hmm. and, and what are you going to do if that environment happens when you're in retirement or your loved one's sick? You know, you have all these risks that as you have it as an individual that the total market doesn't have. Right. So we feel by like by reducing those drawdown risks that you can have with those offensive assets, that allows your your wealth and your savings to compound more efficiently and effectively over the long term. And you need your money to be there when you need it most. Right. The idea of the whole world of in, investing products kind of drives me crazy that we call it investments because it's really, as you know, it's our savings, right? Mm-hmm. If I can't put money back into my business or I had a liquidity event, now I have all this savings now left over. What do I do with that savings? And all I want that savings to really do is outpace inflation and be where that, when I need it most. So right. you can't have it in all these offensive assets that could be two decades underwater or it could be sold. You know, in, in 2008, the stock market was down 55%. You know what are you going to do in that scenario? So we're we're trying to reduce that exposure to the to drawdowns and that that volatility tax. Mm-hmm. So that way, hopefully, you can sleep better at night. I'd like to go back to a time you know pre nineteen eighties 
where you know we weren't checking our 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 stock portfolio on our on our iPhone eight times a day. <laughs> I want people to go back to just enjoying their life, right? Those quotidian right. pleasures of, of family and friends and hobbies. You know, those are what you should focus on. And your your savings should be managed, you know, in a place where you can sleep at night. You know, if right. you wake up and you know the Russia's invaded the Ukraine, you know your portfolio is okay. You know, and you're not panicking. Like so that way right. you can, you know, that morning you can you can enjoy the coffee with your significant other because you're not worried about what your savings are doing. Right, right. I think the big takeaway from that uh, somewhat complex conversation. Yeah. <laughs> the, but the but the big takeaway is that you want it to be there when you need it and that downturns that yes, uh, the 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 whole market trend is over decades and decades and 100 years and those types of things. Well, we're not all retiring over a hundred year period of, exactly. of time. We want to retire or we need, uh, you know, or, or a spouse gets sick or something here and now. So at the here and now, if we're in the middle of a, of a ridiculous recession or we've got gas lines again, which I'm dating myself, I remember these things, um, you know, then, then all of that balancing and all of that quote unquote diversification and protection and everything that we supposedly did right isn't going to matter because the stock market just plunged and everything, and we just lost half of our assets. So yeah, you want it to be there when you need it. And, uh, and, and, and I, I like that the cockroach. <laughs> yes, I will remember so, that. <laughs> I want to pull on a, a few threads that you that you threw out there. One is like just an example. This is why we have those commodity trend ensemble of advisors in there too. Is like you know in this last year when we saw you know o- you know oil prices spiking at the pumps, and I remember my girlfriend is like you know I live in Northern California, which is the worst, but like we got over seven dollars a gallon. Mm-hmm. And my girlfriend's pointing us out like this is exactly why we have a commodity trend advisors fund, and that is so they can ride these commodity markets mm-hmm. as they go up or down. And then that provides that ballast to our savings to know that we're going to hopefully maintain some of that purchase power parity, even when, you know, you're seeing that the prices at the pump or your other food commodity staples are going up. We want to have a little bit of hedge for that as well. And and so those are the kind of peace of minds we're we're generally looking for. Okay. All right. So who is that going to be most appropriate for? Great question. So maybe it'd be helpful if I give uh, somewhat a little bit more of my background, just um, and then I'll illuminate exactly who you know the cockroach portfolio is for. So I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, but I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Um, my mother was a uh, owned a shoe store, and then she was a real estate agent that became a house flipper, and now she owns one of the oldest movie uh, single screen movie theaters in the country. And then uh, my my father comes. We come from a long line of. It's that classic example of the third generation of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. So I've seen this, you know, firsthand where my my great grandfather invented the articulating chuck that holds drills in place and started a company that got passed on to my grandfather and then on to my father. And my father's that classic third generation where just we we destroyed it all, sold it, sold the company, you know, burned through that money, all of those sorts of things. So I've been obsessed (laughs) with multi-generational wealth my whole life. I'm sorry. No, no, it's (laughs) just you should, because it's what happens and it should be illustrated for all of us that like. You know, I love the other quote is like fly first class because your grandkids definitely will, you know, so it's like, (laughs) you know, like these, these sorts of things, that entrepreneurial spirit tends not to make it through the generations, but that's what we're all striving for. And so I was obsessed, you know, with what happened within my own family. So I remember, you know, as a teenager, I remember when Worth Magazine first came out. I don't know if it's still out there, but like that was the idea of it was uh, what high net worth individuals do with to manage their wealth over the long term or multi-generation. So I was obsessed with kind of kind of learning all these things. And then, like I said, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, um, was then running a commercial real estate development company into 2007, 2008. 
But at the same time, I also consult with a lot of entrepreneurs and so does my partner as well. He's a serial entrepreneur as well. And we consult with entrepreneurs all the time. And one of the things that, that always bothers me is if you have any savings left over that you can't put back in your business, you know, a typical financial advisor will have you put in the stock market. Well, now you're leveraged long to the stock market because your business is leveraged long to the stock market. It's, it's leveraged long to GDP, to liquidity, to credit. And so when the stock market sells off, that's when your business is probably getting hurt the most. So why would you want to take on that extra risk? But this is what a lot of financial advisors, you know, just have people do because it's the easiest thing to hit that buy button on just buying the S&P or a 60-40 portfolio. So we wanted to build something that had that, that defensive assets in place. But the other thing why I mentioned the, the whole entrepreneurial journey, because I know as an entrepreneur, we have to take unbelievable risk and concentrated risk to build wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have usually a very singular business. We pour everything we have into that, you know, 24-7 for decades on end. And we finally amass some savings or wealth. The problem is to keep it, we have to do a 180 degree turn and really diversify. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest issue is like you go from very concentrated position to now mm-hmm. have to that built the wealth, but to keep your wealth, now you have to really diversify. And that's why we believe in the combined the offensive and defensive assets. So when we launched our fund, uh, my partner and I, our, our entire ecosystem of, of friends and followers across social media are typically um, entrepreneurs 25 to 40 years old that had their first liquidity event. And so that was the idea is like they had that concentration. They sold their um, e-commerce or SaaS business for 10 million bucks. Mm-hmm. Now, what are they going to do right now? They need the broad diversification of a cockroach portfolio to provide that um, diversification they need moving forward to make sure they they stay wealthy. That's the hard part, right? As we know, right. it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard to get wealthy. Then it's it's even harder sometimes to stay wealthy. Right. So that was our, our core audience was those entrepreneurs. But then as we found um, actually through our parents and grandparents and, and aunts and uncles and then, you know, building our audience over time is it's also great for retirees. Because once again, as a retiree, you can't have that volatility tax. You can't sustain a 50% drawdown. You can't be in drawdown for decades at a time. Right. So it's, it's really almost barbelling that is, is this essence of, you know, um, entrepreneurs that are having their first liquidity event or that have any savings left over the camp put back in their business and then more retirees. But then, of course, like every entrepreneur, I think my product's for everybody, but we know that's not the case. <laughs> So you just touched on it very quickly, the 60-40 portfolio. What's wrong with that concept? Sure. What, what's been great for the 60-40 portfolio is it's worked phenomenally for the last 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. And the idea around why it's worked so well is in those stock market sell-offs, um, bonds have rallied. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's what we call the Fed put or Fed injecting liquidity or, or providing that ballast to the market and stock and bonds have really provided that ballast for the stock market. Mm-hmm. And so essentially they've been uncorrelated or negatively correlated for the last 40 years. Right. The problem is if we zoom out to a, like a 120 year timeline, mm-hmm. stocks and bonds are correlated more often than they're negatively correlated. So typically when you see it, uh, historically, when you see a sell-off in stocks, you'll also see the commensurate sell-off in bonds. Where you really see that uh, most prominently is during inflationary environments. Mm-hmm. And so you saw this big time in the 1970s. You're mm-hmm. going to, you know, we're starting to see it in this last year where those correlations are starting to be uh, positive between stocks and bonds. As we've seen this year, this is the worst start to a 60-40 portfolio in history. Right. And so that is the question is like, you're betting on this correlation matrix between stocks and bonds. And the question is, what's worked for the last 30 to 40 years? Is that going to work for the next 30 to 40? And none of us have any idea. Right. And quite frankly, if we go through a, a decade or a multi-decade period of them being correlated, now mm-hmm. your entire portfolio is correlated. And the idea was we always use 
people didn't really love bonds, but what mm -hmm. they're really doing is they're just reducing their allocation to the S&P 500 because having a hundred percent allocation to the S&P 500 is very volatile and people can't sustain that volatility. So by bringing that stock allocation down to 60%, you know, you could have held 40% cash and it would pretty much done very similar to these 60, 40 bonds, you know, so the bonds aren't going to provide that much of a balance moving forward as we're down to near zero rates. Right. And as we're having inflation manifest itself. So that's the question is like, what's worked for the last few decades? Are you betting on if that's going to work for the next few decades? Right. And what I'm finding is that what has been almost guaranteed over the past 100 years, century, you, you can't, um, what am I trying to say? You, you, you can't guarantee on the same things that we've been able to guarantee. I mean, there were so many, it will never happens that have happened. Yeah. over the last 10 years and especially the last three years that you can't guarantee you, you, you there are no guarantees i mean that's that's a that's a cliche but it's been proven so many times over especially in the last three years but also in the last you know 10 years alone i mean who would have ever you know predicted something like covid and all of the uh repercussions that have come from it uh, it just, yeah, it, it's, it's, and, and, and so many other things, but anyway. <laughs> well, that's what I, I love about the portfolios we create is like, I always try to say, is like, we, tr we try to create the least shitty portfolio. And, <laughs> and what I'm going to mean by that is everybody's trying to build these unbelievably optimized portfolio with all these hero trades where like, they're going to predict what's going to happen in the market in the next six to 24 months. Right. We believe nobody can predict what's going to happen in the markets the next six to 24 months. Cause we're always surprised. Right. So therefore we want to build the most robust portfolio. So like mm -hmm. we're worried about losses, not necessarily gains. The gains will take care of themselves, mm -hmm. but more importantly, we're trying to prepare, not predict. So I right. don't have a crystal ball. I don't believe anybody else does, but I want to build a portfolio so I can sleep at night. So no matter what comes along, whether we're in growth or recession or inflation or deflation, mm -hmm. I have a portfolio that kind of manage those. But part of that too, is that means at least one or two of those asset classes are going to be terrible, right? They're going to be in drawdown. <laughs> All the financial news is going to tell you, you should never hold these or whatever. So proper diversification means you're feeling a little bit of pain. If you're right. completely happy with every asset class in your portfolio, you're not properly diversified. So that's... <laughs> That's okay. the kind of kind of the rub with what we're creating. And then what keeps me up at night with what you said is like, even if somebody does a hundred year back test, I always like to point out that, you know, since the full advent of the industrial revolution, we went from a, a billion people in the workforce to 5 billion, right? Mm -hmm. And allegedly we're going to hit peak population in 2070 and we're going to top out around nine to 10 billion, right? So from here to there, you know, you don't have that GDP growth that went from one to five X. Mm -hmm. You know, and what did that do during the entire 20th century to stock markets and other investments? That's an amazing GDP growth. So now if we went from exponential growth to linear growth, or maybe even population attrition coming back down the other side, what do you do? And so the, if, even if, you know, you're happy with your portfolio the last 100 years, that doesn't mean it's going to work for the next 100 right. years. And so therefore, we think that by holding like all the world's asset classes and rebalancing, that's kind of the best you can do. And that's why I say it's like the least shitty portfolio. I'm going, okay, uh, you need, instead of the cockroach portfolio. <laughs> yeah, I just try to alienate everybody, the, apparently. The least shittiest portfolio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if that's going to be a good marketing tool or not. Yeah. It gets people's attention, though, and as it you know, that's... Would. that's what, it definitely would, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> so for entrepreneurs um, who are selling, thinking about selling or have sold their business, um, how should they adjust their thinking after 
the sale of that business. Yeah, there's, um, and almost like you do, I'll do like go pre-sale, sale, and then post-sale, uh, mm-hmm. as you do a, such a great job with. And, you know, um, we're so like-minded in the sense that both my partner and I b- even build our companies on the built-to-sell philosophy. So we don't even, try, like you're trying to say, like, you know, prepare two to three years ahead of time before that sales. Like we actually like to build the entire company from scratch with yeah. the idea that we're going to sell it eventually. Oh, Knowing yeah. we're not, We have no plans of selling it, but right. that's the right way to build a company, right? You're going to build exactly. the systems and everything in place. And so I wish, you know, more people uh, knew that. And that's what uh, my partner and I usually coach other entrepreneurs on for the last few decades as well. And so one, you want to have, you know, your company running smoothly going into that sale, but also it's pretty rare, honestly, that a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners have a lot of savings left over. You know, they're usually plowing it back to the business, but if they did, once again, like I was saying, you don't want to take that extra leverage of being long the stock market. You know, you should look for more defensive assets. Honestly, like any entrepreneur that has any savings left over, they can't put it back in their business should actually only be looking at defensive assets. So that way they can really hedge themselves during these uh, liquidity events. Like Mm -hmm. take 2007, 2008 or March 2020 example. If you have these uh, convex defensive assets that we like to put together, it's like now all of a sudden you have like this convex cash position. And as we know in a 2007 or 2008 or 2020, cash has a very different value in a market liquidity event or a drawdown. You know, a dollar is not a dollar when these things happen, they're worth a lot more. And so if you have that cash now sitting on your books, now when everybody else is scrambling for cash, then that allows you to, you know, buy up your competitors for pennies on the dollar. It allows mm-hmm. you to make payroll for months or, or maybe even quarters at a time or a year at a time. It allows you to buy up uh, real estate or, or other um, infrastructure or CapEx spending you want to do for pennies on the dollar. Right. So it's a much more valuable tool as you're building a business. If you do have any savings left over in that treasury or at that business or on a personal level, mm-hmm. you should only be looking at defensive assets. Then, as you're saying, as you go into the sale of the business, you're going, you know, you're going to have this liquidity event. I think you do a great job, and 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 all of your, um, you know, other people in your cohort. I like the Exit Planning Institute, et cetera. Is like one making sure people are prepared for the sale. But then, mm-hmm. like I said, after that sale, you're going to have a 180 degree turn. You took an enormous concentration to build wealth. Now, to keep wealth, you're going to have to have that diversification, right. and you're going to need something that combines like these offensive and de- defensive assets. But then, more importantly, another thing to think about that I know you work with clients on is like your income's going to change pretty dramatically. So you yeah. need to think about that as well. And so, what we talk about in you know what some of our financial advisors work with us, or some of our high net worth clients, and what we're working on as well is our cockroach 2.0 version is combining these liquid portfolios we build with these um, illiquid private deterministic cash flow assets. So mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of your clients love real estate. So it's it's more about the combination when you can combine a liquid and illiquid portfolio like that. Mm-hmm. They have this nice symbiotic relationship. So if you can replace some of that cash flow. Um, from selling your business, but also have these these hedges in the marketplace with offensive and defensive assets. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, over time, with that with that portfolio now you built post sale, like you're going to have both you know a balance sheet growth and actually also cash flow growth if you can combine kind of and a liquid and illiquid strategies. Okay, excellent. All right. So one last question: What are you currently reading? Oh man, you asked the right person. I read a lot, uh, and I think right now I'm reading. A book called uh, Ling that's about Brian Ling. He he built LTV, which was one of the first and largest conglomerates in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in Dallas. Okay. So I'm about, about halfway through that one. Um, reading a fiction book called Revelations. That's pretty good. I'm also reading, uh, rereading some passages from one of my favorite books uh, by Fernando Pessoa called The Book of Disquiet. Okay. And that's because I'm, I'm headed to Portugal in a week. So it, it's all based around Lisbon. So uh, I'm rereading that. But yeah, I always have... Tons of books on my shelf. Um, you know, I've read, you know, hundreds of books on, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, trading, et cetera. I was actually thinking about before we got on, 
Um, I don't know if you've ever recommended this, but especially for your audience is like the book, small giants by Bob Burlingham left oh. an indelible impression on me when I was a teenager. I, and I've been, yeah. I've been lucky yeah. to have some combos with Bo as well. And oh. to me, like, that is the only, like, out of like, probably, I don't know, the 500 plus books I've read on entrepreneurship and business ownership, as you know, most of them are trash. They're all these like trite cliches. And you're like, that doesn't deal with the nuance of building a business. Right. Small, small giants is beautiful because it's the idea of, you know, building a great company and not necessarily pursuing growth for growth's sake. And having different metrics about how you build a sustainable business okay. that maybe your family can run or that you eventually convert into like an ESOP for your employees. Right. But I, I highly recommend Small Giants by okay. Bob Burlingham, even though it's, you know, probably 20 years old plus now, yeah. um, all the principles in that are still, you know, as relevant today. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jason. This has been very informative. A lot of fun. <laughs> I like I like being able to geek out on some of this stuff. Although this is not my bailiwick by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> it's, um, you are very you're very good at what you do, and and this was very informative. And I really do hope that um, everybody took something away from it. Uh, at least at the very at the very least, have a conversation and uh, you know ask ask your investor if they know about the cockroach portfolio. <laughs> Exactly. That'll, that'll, that'll at least get their attention. But uh, I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So as always, thank you for joining us today. And I do, again, hope that you found some great value from this episode. This is Christine Trumbull with Mastering Your Exit Strategy. Until next week, take care. Take care.